Every story has a beginning and an end. Everything in between is just a story. The oldest stories known come from the Aborigine people of Australia. Their stories go back at least 30,000 years. They are passed on orally by the tribe's elders under rigid tradition called the law, which ensures the preservation of the Aborigine's ancient tribal narratives. Linguistic scholars who have studied them have noted that the Aborigines' ability to sustain the intergenerational scaffolding needed to transmit stories over vast periods. Aborigine law, tribal law has been academically documented to chronicle the thawing of the Ice Age and the flooding of the Australian close coastline 13,000 years ago. According to the Wisdom Keepers, an episode of Ancient Aliens, the television show purporting to document alien intervention in human history, Aborigine law also recounts meteorite impacts, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and solar eclipses. What is certain is that the Aborigine culture ignores the brutal realities of its own existence and focuses on what is now called the dream time. The word dream time itself is a mistranslation of the Aborigine word Alcharinga, which means uncreated source, a source which was always there, which perpetually yields fresh materials from which everything that is perceived is derived. To the Aborigine, the dream time is an unaltered state of consciousness that lies across the uncharted chasms of the mind, a place where everything that it ever was has been imprinted forever in the ethor. Nothing that was, nothing that is, can be lost, and it can always be accessed by going back to the beginning through the ceremonies and, and dreams. According to ancient aliens, in many ways, the concept of dream time mirrors the ancient Hindu idea of Akashic records. This may not be true. The idea of Akashic records go back no further than Madame Blavatsky and Theosophy, a system of mysticism which she founded. Akasha simply means Ethur in Sanskrit. The expansion of the microcosm into the macrocosm and contraction back to, of the macrocosm into the microcosm is a doctrine of just about every reputable school of mysticism. As it is above, so it is below, to the hermetic. And the living creatures rush forth and return, as it is written in verse 537 of the Zohar, concerning the eyes of the microphosophists. If Bulvatsky and her followers got the idea from anywhere other than a library, that there was an astral hall of cosmic records. It was from Tibetan lamas schooled in all, all the forgotten ways of the religion of, of the ancient Bon religion. Bon was a mysterious religion of Tibet before Buddhism, a primal type of animism that believes all things animate and inanimate are sourced from an invisible world. Ancient Aliens is a show that is often painful to watch, yet it is a necessity for any serious student of human history. The show has by far the f its finest moment in its decade-long existence when it proposes that Aborigines, the, the Aborigines concept of dream, the dream time matches a leading-edge property to, of string theory called the holographic paradigm. There are tears in the fabric of man's reality, and upon scrutiny open to endless abysses of darkness, quantum entanglement has been proven over and over again in laboratories whose annual budget would bankrupt a small country. 
Einstein was wrong, and his precious particles do not react with each other by some mechanism that travels faster than light. Anyone who's ever had a premonition should have, should, should have known that. In the holographic universe, quantum entanglement, the enigma of superluminal interaction between particles with a baffled Einstein called spooky action at a distance, petulantly denying its existence in the face of all the evidence is easily explained. What are being observed in particle physics are not particles at all, but at different aspects of interference patterns generated by the collision of spherical frequency waves emanating from an event horizon. The holographic paradigm postulates, in fact, takes it as a given that at the threshold of, time, of the time-space continuum, what physicists call the cosmological horizon, lay the source of everything that is, ever was, or will be. The information that composes the universe is never lost or changed. It's immutable and is broadcast in oscillating signals, generating a chaotic sea of fluctuating frequencies that are picked up by man's senses and translated by the mind into the three-dimensional world in which he finds himself. A short consciousness, in short, consciousness takes place inside a frequency receiver, and reality is a television show. The empirical evidence is overwhelming that the human brain works in the exact same manner as a hologram. This is called holonomic brain theory by a neuroscientist. Many just cannot accept its implications, but its founder, Carl Prebum, who held professorships for 10 years at Yale and 30 at Stanford, was the Albert Einstein of neuroscience. Prebum died in the beginning of 2015 at the age of 95 after a long and distinguished career working side by side with such giants in science as B.F. Skinner, John von Neumann, and David Bohm, arguably the most brilliant physicist that the Anglo-American Empire produced during the 20th century. Bohm collaborated closely with Prebum in the formulation of the holonomic brain theory, but his earlier radical communist political affiliations would have barred him from the inner sanctum of the Sanford Research Institute. Dreamtime, mankind creates his shared holographic reality. There at Menlo Park, in the womb of madness, Prebum would have had access to at least some of the classified material of Harold Puthoff and Russell Targ. Throughout the 70s, Puthoff and Targ were weaponizing the paranormal for America's Department of Defense. They were working in the outer limits of quantum entanglement. In fact, Prebum admits to consulting with both Putoff and Targ about it before beginning his collaboration with Bohm. In the interview from years ago, Prebum explains, when an input comes into one of the senses to the brain, it has to them become encoded in some way that there is is a representation. Brigham calls these representations memory traces and says they have no localized point of origin in the brain. If you hack away at the brain in surgery, you would expect that whatever representation of processes there is, call it memory trace if you will, that it would really be impaired tremendously, that you would remove a memory, like cutting off a piece of, of a picture. It doesn't work that way. Prebum, a highly skilled neurosurgeon, noted, among other things, for his experimental work at the Yerkes Primate Center, of which he became director, recounts that 
when lesions occur in the brain, there is never any particular memory trace that is removed. Recalling from an over half a century of experience, he continues, you may remove something like the way to retrieve, to get back out of the memory, for instance. You might not be able to talk about it, but you could still write a note and say what it is you mean. But the overall method by which these memories are spread throughout the brain and enabling them to avoid damage from injury has been a mystery. Freeman explains that is that it was discovered in the late 50s that the input from the retina is organized in spots, then focused into lines in the cerebral cortex, suggesting that the cerebral cortex is filled with the cells that act as line detectors. These cells are sensitive to lines at multiple orientations, and once you have lines, you can create circles, faces, stick figures, whatever, to formulate images. The idea that the cerebral cortex was interpreting interference patterns can be traced back to Germany in 1906. Decades later, John Lashley, Prebrum's mentor at the Yerkes Primate Center, reached the same conclusion. Interference patterns can be seen in the water if you cast two stones in a pool. When the series of concentric waves generated by each of the stones clash, the resulting confused ripples or wavelets are interference patterns. The interview in the interview, Prebrum asks, what might constitute those interference patterns in the brain? And given interference patterns, how do you get an image out of that? He then answers his own question by saying both problems were solved when people started building holograms at the University of Michigan and at Stanford around 1962. He qualifies that by saying, because a hologram is a photographic store of ripples of interference patterns, instead of pebbles on a pond, what you might have is a light beams hitting the film. The light then spreads and ripples over the surface of the film. Freeman continues, every light beam that hits does that and the neighboring ones do it and the neighboring ones and so you got every light beam every part of a beam especially spread over the, the entire surface that's why mathematically it's called a spread function in a hologram that spread function is translated into images and with every passing year in neuroscience it becomes more and more apparent Prevam uses the word overwhelmingly that the brain functions in the same manner Prebum goes on to say, over the last 30 years or so, more and more evidence has accumulated to suggest strongly that the cerebral cortex acts as a resonator. It resonates to the frequencies of energies that are being transduced by the receptors. It's the frequencies of energies, he emphasizes, that this is not an epiphany. German scientists were talking about it in 1906. Holography works by using interference patterns to encode information about a three-dimensional object into what is, for intensive purposes, two-dimensional light beam. The interference patterns can then be translated back into three-dimensional object. A tremendous amount of information can be stored and transferred this way. Another profoundly functional feature of the hologram, an analogist, to the non-locality of memory in the human brain is that all information is stored throughout the entire hologram. As long as a part of the hologram is big enough to contain the interference pattern, it can recreate the entire image stored in the hologram. 
Holographic technology is based on the Fourier transform, a type of integral transfer sometimes called an improper Riemann integral. The Fourier transform itself is a mathematical function originally used in the 19th century to show the transfer of heat between two systems. Fourier transforms are the foundation of spectral analysis and in the late 20th, in the late 20th and early 21st century. In a Fourier transform, two graphs are created, one showing the frequency domain and the other the time domain. The differential is then mapped between the two domains and through various permutations of the equations, a spreadsheet is achieved of all the individual frequencies that constitute a function of time, what is defined as a signal. Often, it is easier to solve a problem in the time domain by working on it in the frequency domain. Afterwards, transformation of the, of the result can be made back to the time domain by re reversing the equation, what is called an inverse Fourier transform. The entire signal can be filtered simply by engaging the frequencies in the frequency domain. A Fourier transform can theoretically be used to send a function of three-dimensional continuum into a moving four-dimensional mass or vice versa. The father of, of the holograph is 1971 Nobel Prize recipient Dennis Gabor, who right after World War II produced the math called widowed, windowed Fourier transforms necessary to make one. Gabor served in the Hungarian artillery unit during World War I and in the 20s was instrumental in the development of the electron microscope in Berlin. When the National Socialists came to power in 1933, Gabor, a Hungarian Jew that had converted to Lutheran, fled Germany to England. By the end, by the time Gabor worked with them, Fourier transforms had been infused with the genius of Bernard Riemann the 19th century German mathematician who broke the back of Euclidean geometry for good, making quantum physics and relativity possible. Erwin Schrodinger, the 20th century Austrian physicist whose wave equation would become one of the two pillars of quantum physics and the foundation of wave mechanics. Dave Hilbert, the German mathematician who taught most of the others and after whom Hilbert's space is named, and Weiner Herzenberg, the discoverer of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the other pillar of quantum physics. Gabor would have at least had ha would have, have at least had access, if not worked directly with the legendary John von Neumann, Hilbert's best pupil. Gabor and von Neumann were both Jews, native Hungarians and born to money. Although von Neumann's education under Hilbert had been paid for by the Rockefeller Foundation. Von Neumann was, in fact, titled nobility, besides being the man who named Hilbert space in Hilbert's honor. Von Neumann was perhaps the most brilliant mathematician who ever lived. He would leave Berlin upon him concluding his tutelage under Hilbert and be in Princeton by the end of 1929. At Princeton, Von Neumann delighted in playing Prussian marching music so loud on his gramophone that Einstein, who was in the adjoining office, would have to ask the authorities to intervene. In vain, there was nothing Einstein or anyone else could do about it. Von Neumann wrote the textbook of quantum mechanics, Mathematisch Grundlagen der Quantum Mechanik, or in English, Mathematical Foundations of Quantum Mechanics. His mathematical contributions to civilization could fill a library. 
but his real achievements remain classified to this day. It is said that when von Neumann was dying of cancer, while under sedition, he was surrounded by special forces guard to ensure he didn't blurt out any of the Empire's secrets. Von Neumann would tell anyone who listened, delighted in it, that he had mathematically proven Einstein wrong. Most academics, although they could not understand his math, believed him and still do. Although they are now fonder of the experimental results of John Stuart Bell for their Einstein bashing, Einstein had always insisted that there was hidden variables. Einstein had always insisted that there were hidden variables that, when discovered, would reconcile quantum physics, which is indeterminate, and relativity, which is indeterminate. In Einstein's vision of the future, there would be just one unified field of physical phenomena, and it would be determinant. In physics, determinant means events transpire as a result of mechanistic necessity and are therefore predictable. They follow laws. All physical phenomena should follow rules, but they don't. In quantum physics, quantum entanglement is not, not the only enigma. There is the double slit experiment, where an individual particle is fired through a slit and another through a different slit at a, at a screen. What shows up on the screen is a wave interference pattern, which could have only been made by waves passing through the slit. There is the wave function collapse and quantum randomness in general. If the observer calculates the position of a subatomic particle in space, they cannot calculate its momentum because the very act of locating it influences its trajectory. If they find its momentum, the act of their doing so prevents them from finding its position. That's the short definition of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. It's all about predicting probabilities in a matrix. Nothing is certain, and the observer is part of the equation. Anathema to good science. Owen Schrodinger, who won the Nobel Prize in 1933 for providing the equation that makes it all work, was more than just a scientist. A philosopher and poet at heart, he was a lifelong student of the Vedas and believed individual consciousness was a manifestation of the universal whole. Back then, Schrodinger described the prevailing interpretation of quantum physics, now called the Copenhagen interpretation, as making no distinction between the state of a natural object and what I know about it, or perhaps better, what I can know about it if I go to, uh, to some trouble. Actually, so they say, there is intrinsically only awareness, observation, and measurement. The Copenhagen interpretation is the prevailing school of thought in quantum physics to this very day. As George Berkeley, the father of materialism, and therefore the Copenhagen interpretation, said that 300 years ago, nothing can exist if there is nothing to see it. S-E-S percipi, to be is to be perceived. After serving as an apprentice to the mysterious German scientist Max Wien, heir of Frederick Passion's late 19th century experimental research on hydrogen spectral lines in the infrared region, Schrodinger would begin publishing papers about atomic theory and the theory of spectra in the early 20s. He would publish his famous equation in 1926. In the 21st century, it's still the tool of mathematicians used to describe a wave function. In the Copenhagen interpretation, the wave function is the most complete description that can be given to a physical system. 
And quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger equation, predicts probability distributions from which results are drawn. A probability distribution is a mathematical description of random phenomena. There are no exact results, and at the time Schrodinger is quoted as saying, I don't like it, and I'm sorry I ever had anything to do with it. Einstein was livid. Not only was special, the special theory of relativity no longer feasible, but perhaps relativity itself. As every schoolchild knows, he said, God does not play dice with the universe. Schrodinger worked closely with Einstein in the ensuing years, attempting to formulate a unified field theory and reconcile the whole mess into one determinate science. But by the end of the 40s, he had abandoned those efforts. In a 1952 lecture, he made the first documentable reference to what has become known as the multiverse, prefacing it by saying that what, I, what he was about to say might seem lunatic. Schrodinger went on to tell his perplexed audience that when his equations seem to be describing several different histories, they are not alternatives, but all really happen simultaneously. Famously, in 1956, Schrodinger would refuse to speak about nuclear energy at an important lecture during the World Energy Conference, giving a philosophical lecture instead because he had become skeptical about the entire subject. It would cause a great deal of controversy in the physics community after that, abandoning the idea of particles altogether and adopting the wave-only theory also put forth by Hugh Everett III in his Many Worlds interpretation of the multiverse. In the Many Worlds interpretation, the wave in the quantum state is the only thing that is real, and under the appropriate conditions, it will exhibit particle-like behavior. In Everett's multiverse, everything that ever could happen, that could have happened in the past, did. And does occur. After John von Neumann died prematurely of cancer in 1957, Hugh Everett III would become the Anglo-American Empire's go-to guy on quantum physics. Pilot waves were first proposed by Einstein in an effort to explain the wave interference patterns produced by particles in cases like the double slit experiment. He had hoped that they would be, could be explained deterministically if the particle was somehow guided by an electromagnetic field, which would thus play the role of what he called the Fugens field, or guiding field. The idea of a pilot wave was picked up and made mathematically feasible by Louis de Broglie in 1927, but with little support from the physics community, now enamored by Heisenberg and the Copenhagen interpretation. It died a slow death from neglect. De Broglie's math was resurrected by David Bohm in 1952 and renamed Bohemian Mechanics. Heisenberg who had been profoundly unsympathetic to the idea from its inception in the 20s, wrote in 1955 that there's nothing more than an exact repetition of the Copenhagen interpretation in a different language. Regardless of the value of bohemian mechanics, the rest of what David Bohm had to say about the holographic universe may be a summation of everything that was really learned by man in the 20th century. Bohm said there were, there were two worlds. The primary one he called the implicate order, or the enfolded order. 
He said the enfolded order was the ground out of which reality emerges. The other world, reality, the world of human senses, the world where consciousness dwells, he called the explicate order or the unfolded order. What we take for reality, Bohm argues, are surface phenomena, explicate forms that have temporarily unfolded out from underlying an underlying implicate order. Within this deeper order, forms are unfolded within within, each other, so systems, which may well be separated in the explicate order, are contained within each other in an implicate order. Superficially, it would appear that the two worlds are dual forms related by an integral transfer, but the reality is the unfolded order cannot exist independent of the infolded order. Bohm, always a pariah to the powers that be because of his politics, sometimes had his work classified before he could even finish it. In the Manhattan Project, he was banned access to Los Alamos and was not allowed to write the thesis for his own scattering equations. Einstein had always been his mentor, shielding him and preventing his ostracism from academia. And Bohm had always worked closely with him in Einstein's quest to save physics as he knew it. But by the end of the war, Bohm had come to the conclusion that quantum mechanics would never become a deterministic science. He stopped looking for deterministic mechanisms as the cause of quantum phenomena and set out to show that the events could be attributed to a far deeper underlying reality. Bohm's idea of an implicate and explicate order mirrored the conclusions reached by Mircea Alinde, the world's foremost theological scholar in World War II. Alinde said there were only the sacred and the profane. The sacred is the place of, the myth- of mythology where the gods and architects dwell together with all things that establish the very structure of this world. The sacred is the first cause of the Gnostics, the Altaringa of the Aborigine, and the implicate order of Bohemian mechanics. The profane is the material things of this world, the things that have nothing to do with the sacred. They are basically just like the set in an old black and white movie story. Elinde said, They acquire their reality, their identity, only to the extent of their participation in transcendent reality. In other words, it is only through its participation in the sacred that the profane finds validation. Through his myths, his ceremonies, and his rituals, even in his behavior and dreams, man manifests the sacred into the profane. It is man himself that breathes reality into the fleeting and phantasmagorical world of the profane. Melinde said that in order to uphold the world of the profane, the sacred must be manifested into it over and over again. He called these incarnations, these places where the sacred intersects with the profane, the eternal realm, not the the eternal return, not to be confused with Nietzsche's eternal return, just as important, but more to do with the cycle of yugas and the Mandela. Melinde called these manifestations of the sacred into the profane hierophanies. Alinde maintained that all shamanic practices and cultures uncluttered by the poisons of the 20th century rationalism, indeed the foundation of all paleolithic spiritual practices, was an attempt to produce these hierophanies. 
No one was, nor ever will be, more influential than the Museo in Linde, not even the vaunted Joseph Campbell. For present-day academia, with its penchant for, for semantics and cutting the whole up into smaller and smaller pieces so there is nothing left to see, see at all, still rails against them. They say Linde painted all cultures with too broad a brushstroke and seem to feel that their exceptions are more important than his whole. The same mistake Einstein made. But even Linde's staunchest critic, Jeffrey Kirk, Regis Professor of Greek at the University of Cambridge from 1974 to 1984, and prolific author himself, concedes that what Linde said about the eternal return fit the culture of Australia's Aborigines like Cinderella's slipper. There has always been something dark and foreboding about Australia. Master of the horror, H.P. Lovecraft, wrote about it in the shadow out of time. There is something menacing, something unspoken and threatening, a nameless fear of the stark and unforgiving land, and an instinctual loathing of its native Aborigine inhabitants that runs like an unseen current through the hard white men who dispossess them. The British exploratory expedition led by James Cook would land in Botany Bay, where the great city of Sydney now stands. That was in 1777. They began shooting the natives immediately, and the fighting would continue over 150 years. It finally subsided after the Konenstein Massacre in 1928 in the Northern Territory, which left over 100 Aborigines dead. Overall, the fighting left thousands of whites dead and hundreds of thousands of Aborigines. There were no pitched battles. The fighting was at close quarters, often hand-to-hand, before repeating rifles were invented, and savage, more like gang fights than military engagements. Atrocities were committed by both sides, and in the interest of political correctness, a well-documented history of cannibalism among the Aborigines has been kept suppressed by the authorities. The Aborigine bore no animosity towards whites because of their skin color. Eating the dead was strictly business in a land where distances and are endless, and the sun relentless. As settlers claimed the rights to all Australia's fertile land, the Stone Age hunting and gathering lifestyle of the Aborigine proved less and less substance. Resentment and hunger became inevitable. But a journal from its latest, 1849, explains how the Aborigine viewed whites as their ancestors who have returned to them again. The archive diary describes how the Aborigine, before eating each other, would scorch off the entire outer skin or epidermis, which reveals the true skin, which in all branches of the human race is quite white. Their impression being that they, when, when, that they die, the black fellow, England walk, and by and by jump up white fellow. Australia is rivaled for geological anomalies only by its nearest neighbor, Papua New Guinea. Both have stood in isolation for what academia says is 60,000 years. Only their indigenous tribes, more like ghosts than men, can testify as to what cataclysmic events they may have witnessed. In the Kimberley region of Western Australia, 4,000-year-old cave paintings depict fantastic beings from the dream time called Wanjina. Local Aborigine believe the actions of the Wanjina in the dream times manifest themselves as features in the landscape of Australia's great western desert. They believe these beings control the wind, the rain, and the lightning. 
rising like a specter out of the center of the Australian continent on, on an otherwise almost unbroken horizon is Uluru, or as rock, an isolated hill that appears like a single great stone that is embedded into the earth. Uluru, a mecca for tourists, is famous for its glowing red appearance at dusk and dawn and is sacred to the Aborigine. At two miles long, over a mile wide, and 1,100 feet high, Uluru is by far Australia's best-known geological anomaly. But just as striking as Kata Tejuta. Fifteen and a half miles to the west of Mount Kana, slightly to the south, and 45 miles east of Uluru. Kata Tejuta, or Olga's, or the Olga's consist of 36 domes covering a little less than eight and a half square miles, the tallest being Mount Olga at over 1,700 feet high. Mount Kana covers eight and a half square miles and rises 984 feet as its highest point. All of them are conglomerates of granite-like stone and gravel cemented by a matrix of sandstone, about 50% field spar, 20 to 35% quartz, and up to 25% rock fragments. Explanations abound for how the island mountains, called the Inselbergs by academics, got to be in the western desert. They range from the electric universe theory, which postulates that they are the result of an immense electrical discharge, to creationism, which of course believes they were scoured out by the deluge, all the way to academia's old standby of a greased pig erosion. Local Aborigines believe most of the south face of Uluru is the result of a war fought in the dream time between the carpet snakes and the venomous snakes. The northwestern corner of Uluru, the mo- most of its northern north face, were formed as a result of the activities of a hare wallaby and the comings and goings of other dream time entities fill the rest of Uluru's ge- geological features. To the Aborigine, it is the dream time that generates this world, and with, with it, the landscape. Black Mountain National Park is located in the south northern end of Queensland, a little over five miles from the Coral Sea. The park is just a restricted three square mile area around a pile of dark colored granite boulders, some the size of houses. The pile reaches almost a thousand feet high, feet in height. Academics have explanations for this striking geological anomaly. But to the untrained and perhaps the more objective eye, the boulders appear to have been placed there by unknown methods for unknown reasons. Black Mountain has a sinister reputation among whites as well as Aborigine. The Aborigine call it Kalkajaka, or place of the spear, and avoid it. People disappear around Kalkajaka, and the people who go looking for them, them disappear too. Some believe the missing have simply been lost forever in the lamentine passages between the boulders. Others claim the missing were eaten or enslaved by reptilian aliens that, among other things, have been sighted around the rocks. They believe the reptilian aliens have a secret base on the Black Mountain where UFO sightings are a regular occurrence. UFOs have been receiving a lot of attention lately in Australia. An Australian himself, Duncan Rhodes, editor of Nexus magazine for over a quarter century, and the most respected name in the alternative media, recounts, Australia is certainly a hot spot of UFO sightings. We've had phenomenal growth in the reporting of UFO sightings by the general public, especially since the advent of the Internet.
Rhodes points to the area around the Blue Mountains as Australia's New South Wales as a hot spot for UFO sightings and other mysteries. There is certainly a lot of mystery in the Blue Mountains. Campers, bushwalkers, explorers, all have got tales of mystery, disappearing people, strange tunnels, strange noises, and strange creature sightings. According to Aboriginal tribal elder Kevin Gavin, Gavi Duncan, the Blue Mountains is a very sacred area, a sacred place, especially in the highest places, because we would be closer to Biami, closer to God. The numerous disappearances in the Blue Mountains seem to be focused around Mount Yingo, called Uluru of the East. The flat top of Mount Yingo rises about a thousand feet above a plateau and is believed by academics to be all that remains of an ancient volcano. Perhaps because of its prominent flat top, Aborigines believe, tribes believe that after he was done with the act of creating the world, their creator god, Biami, leapt back up into the spirit world from Mount Yingo. Rhodes continues, UFO sightings of the Blue Mountains have triggered many magazine articles, radio shows, and books. A lot of people have come forward over the last few decades to document and put into record their own experiences. Rex Kilroy, author of Mysterious Australia, has unearthed accounts of UFO sightings in the Blue Mountains by 19th century pioneers. Ancient alien straight man David Hatcher Childress theorizes that the Blue Mountains are a stargate, some portal to another dimension, and jumping to hyperspace perhaps. Childress speculates. For some reason, Australia was the place where they put this hyperspace portal used by extraterrestrials. Duncan continues, There are stories that elders would say that some people have actually traveled back to the morning star and have come back. Earlier, standing in front of the ancient rock carving depicting Biami about 40 miles southeast of Mount Yengo, Duncan explained, Biami came from a place that we call the morning star within Mirabuka. Mira means stars and Buka means river. That means the Milky Way that flows across the North, North Star. Duncan then gives his interpretation of the petroglyph. Biami holds the moon in one hand and the morning star in the other, which is a bit like what we call planet Earth. And these two are, these are the two moons which exist around the morning star in the Mirabuka. What the petroglyph shows is Biami with his arms outstretched and the giant knife horizontal across his navel. The hilt is under his left arm. He is holding a circle in his right hand and a crescent in his left. Below the crescent is another circle suspended in mid-air slightly smaller than the one he holds in his right hand. To the right of the free-floating circle, perfectly horizontal to it, is a much smaller, almost tiny circle. Slightly to the right of the tiny circle and above it is another tiny circle. If the two tiny circles are rotated about 280 degrees clockwise or 90 degrees counterclockwise so that the tiny circle was furthest from Biami is now at the hilt of the knife, you have a close image to what left to right is the middle of Australia. Mount Crane would be the large circle, now furthest right. Three Sisters Rock Formation is about 50 miles southwest of Mount Yingo and the three craggy pillars of sandstone tower above the left lush Jameson Valley, no doubt conjuring memory, memories of Australia's early Anglo-Saxon settlers of the three weird sisters, 
crouched at their cauldron, casting spells on both gods and men in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Weird is an old Anglo-Saxon word meaning destiny, to come to pass, to become. By the 15th century, it had come to mean having the power to control faith. In the 16th century, Scotland and Northern England, Weird implied that an event was miraculous. It wasn't until the early 19th century that Weird became to mean something was odd. The Proto-Indo-European root is wert, meaning to turn or to rotate. In 1965 epic science fiction novel, Dune, by Frank Herbert, the weirding way is an overwhelming close quarter fighting technique used by the story's messianic hero and his rebel armies with devastating effectiveness. In hand-to-hand combat, its adepts are able to maneuver around and strike their opponents at speeds that resemble teleportation to the observer, and words and sounds can be amplified to become lethal weapons. Mastery of the Weirding Way required the adoption of completely different concepts of what the space-time continuum is and what is the cause and effect are. The essence of the Weirding Way is summed up in both the motto and the mantra of its practitioners. My mind affects my reality. Weird is a notion taken from pre-Christian religion of the Norsemen. The Old Norse, the word Ura, is also the name of the mother of the Norns, female beings who rule over the destiny of the gods and men. There are, there are many norns, good and evil, who appear at the person's side at their birth and decide on their future. Ura, Varande, and Skuld are the most powerful of the norns and said to have come to intervene in a time long past when the gods ruled too heartily over men. The three beautiful maidens pour the purifying waters of the Rubrana over the Yggdrasil to keep it eternally rejuvenated. The Rubrana is said to be one of the three wells, one under which each of the three roots of the Yggdrasil. Each root reaches to a different far-off land. The other two wells are Hevagelmar, located beneath the root of the film, and Misbrunna, located beneath the root near the home of the frost juntar. It is said that Odin gave one of his eyes to drink from the Mismabrunna, the well of wisdom and understanding. Aside from Tasmania and parts of New Zealand, Australia's Blue Mountains is the last real stop in the Pacific Ocean before the Antarctic. The Blue Mountains are about as far away as you can get from land, the land of the Norsemen on the Baltic Sea. But as Caroline Quarry, author of The Visible and Invisible Worlds of God, notes, there are several biblical chords on the planet. This particular location is located exactly at negative 33 latitude. Quarry then recites the standard alien enthusiast dogma about the 33 degree latitude of planet Earth aligning with the center of the galaxy and how it is continuously being visited from different parts of of the planetary system, from different parts of the galaxy, and even from beyond this galaxy, from way out in the universe. Most amateur UFO enthusiasts have never never heard of Bruce Cathy and his book Harmonic 33, published way back in 1968. But most professional researchers are well acquainted with the book, and many New Age authors use Cathy's math to validate their Tinkerbellian speculations. Even while you read this, read this, interplanetary spaceships are rebuilding a world grid system from which it appears they can draw motive power and they are possibly using the grid for navigational purposes. 
This is the cover sentence for Homo in Atlantic 33. There are rumors that the original book was immediately pulled, pulled from bookstore shelves, edited, then re-released, with Catherine put on the wraps and signed a handler, never to produce anything again of any consequence for the general public, though he would write a few more books. Kathy, a New Zealand airline pilot, saw his first UFO in 1952. He would be fascinated until he died in 2013. He began collecting data and collating it with the sightings by other pilots over New Zealand. Using techniques borrowed from French UFO researcher Amy Michelle, he was able to establish two track lines where aerial anomalies were being regularly encountered. From there, he was able to form a complete grid network over the whole of New Zealand. Kathy learned that the American survey ship Altanen had taken some of the strangest photographs of the 20th century off the west coast of South America. There, 13,000 feet beneath the waves, mounted on the Pacific seabed, was an aerial-like object that was two or three feet high and had six main crossbars spaced evenly up its stem, with a smaller one on top. Each set, set of the crossbars had a small ball at the end of each arm. Later, one of the scientists who had been on board the Altanen told Kathy the object was thought to be metallic and an artifact of some kind. Kathy was able to align his New Zealand grid with the coordinates of the artifact, fashioning what he reasoned was a world energy grid and perhaps used as a galactic navigational tool by extraterrestrials. Interestingly enough, in light of Erwin Schrodinger's actions at the World Energy Conference in 1956, Kathy did not believe a nuclear, nuclear weapons could be detonated randomly, but would have to be exact, at exactly the right coordinates at exactly the right times to work. Using his world energy grid, he started publicly predicting the exact times and places of test sites before they got him muzzled. In Kathy's own words, it was only a matter of time before I realized that the energy network formed by the grid was already known to a powerful group of international interests and scientists. It became obvious that the system had many military applications and that political advantage could be gained by those with secret knowledge of this nature. It would be possible for a comparatively small group with this knowledge to take over control of the world. Kathy concluded that the whole physical reality was in fact manifested by a complex pattern of interlocking waveforms. Aliens are a very gray area, as, as is reality itself. That the explicate order translate out, out of the implicate order, which the sacred manifests in the profane, they are like points in a wave that show up as a particle, just as surely as they are guided only by Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Something is going on in the Blue Mountains, always has been. It's been categorized by 21st century academia as paranormal, but it's something Australia's Aborigine people are well acquainted with. Duncan Rhodes is the man who introduced Bruce Cathy to the general public. He knows words like von Neumann new numbers. He says the Australian Aborigines have a connection and a relationship with what we call extraterrestrials and UFOs, which goes back tens of thousands of years. They're rather nonplussed by their existence, they have developed an awareness of individual types of visitors from what we call outer space. The three sisters crouch at the south edge of the town, the Katumba, an Anglo-Saxon enclave of artists and artisans. They can be reviewed from its golf course and are the most famous landmark in the city of Blue Mountains. 
The ribbon of contiguous towns which lie in the New South Wales Main Western Railway Line, the city of Blue Mountains has dubbed itself the city within a World Heritage National Park. It has a sister city relationship with Sanza City, Japan, and Flagstaff, Arizona of the United States of America. Located in the, in the southwest four corners, an area famed for its paranormal activities, Flagstaff is the unofficial capital of the Navajo Nation, and the Hopi and priestly, the priestly tribe are the keepers of the Din's most profound secrets. Like a penitent kneeling at the foot of the altar, Flagstaff prostrates itself at the south foot of the Gazas Peak, Fremont Peak, and Doyle Peak in the Kachina Peaks Wilderness. To the whole by this area, part of the San Francisco Peaks, the remains of an eroded composite volcano is the most sacred place in the Four Corners. In fact, it is the most sacred place in the world. The San Francisco Peaks are where the doorways open up for their gods, which they call the Kachina. To come forth when they are called from the powerful ceremonies performed by the Hopi. The Kachina are supernatural beings sent to control the wind, the rain, and the lightning. At 11,464 feet, Doyle Peak was the site of the world's highest astronomical observation point from 1927 to 1932. Built by the Lowell Observatory, the stated purpose of the cavern on the south side of the summit was to scan the heavens and make spectroscopic observations, especially in the ultraviolet and infrared wavelengths. In 2005, a collaborative project team formed at the heart, of which is still active today, including Nassau scientists, Navajo medicine men, and both Nassau and Navajo educators. Flagstaff is the home of the Lowell Observatory, the U.S. Naval Observatory, and the United States Geological Survey Flagstaff Station.